All right, we got to verse 2, and I had some cross-references for us to look up, but let's go back and uh, read our text here. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us one, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility of sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So chapter 11 was the the people who set a great example by having put faith in God and trusting God and who both won great victories and others who were tortured and um, mocked and and mistreated, but they're all great people of faith because they trusted God and they believed God. So the cloud that's the cloud of witnesses, the people who have gone before us that um, had faith in God and trusted God. And now we, we move from those people that we can learn from to Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate one that we look to and find encouragement in our struggles and in our faith. Now, last week we spent a lot of time talking about verse 2 because there were so many theological issues that come up in this verse and also issues of translation, but we won't go back all over that. We'll just, uh, but I do want to look up some cross references. Well, let's just start right here. Um, Dean, Psalm 22, 6 through 8. Uh, Brian, Psalm 69, 19 and 20. Denise, Psalm 110 and verse 1. Stephan, Isaiah 53, 3. And Karen, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. And Keith, I got one for you too, Romans 15 and verse 3. So we'll just hand this along and just this way. Okay, first one is Psalm 22, 6 through 8. But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh, uh, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he, he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing the delight, seeing he delighted in him. Okay, that's a prophetic psalm, and it talks about Jesus here despising the shame. So those things that uh, Dean read about in Psalm 22, 6 through 8 were fulfilled, and you can read about the fulfillment in Matthew chapter 27. They literally said to him, Oh, if you're the Son of God, then why doesn't He save you off the cross? Come down from the cross, they said, and then we'll believe you. So it's talking about the mockery that Jesus underwent by these wicked sinners who um, uh, refused to repent. Okay, Isaiah, excuse me, Psalm 69, 19 and 20. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Insults and reproach have broken my heart. I am full of heaviness, and I am distressingly sick. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Okay. And then, again, that's a prophetic psalm about Messiah. And then Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. As we said last week, that's the most quoted or alluded to psalm in the New Testament. And it's one of the most important prophecies in the whole Old Testament, according to the New, is Psalm 110, the whole psalm, but particularly verse 1. And there's other parts of it that are very important too. And as we said last week, the reason Psalm 110 verse 1 is important is because it validates the Christian claim that Jesus Christ did come and he is reigning. Because the detractor said, well, if Messiah comes, he's going to defeat his enemies and he's going to reign. That's what, that's what the Bible says. And so this Jesus that you say is the Messiah, he was crucified. How's that reigning? How's he, uh, how's he reigning uh, on God's behalf? So how can he be the Messiah? And the early church, starting on the day of Pentecost, where this is cited, 
said he has prophesied in the Bible that he would ascend into heaven and reign at the right hand of God. Psalm 110 verse 1. And Jesus also mentioned this psalm when he uh, challenged the religious leaders and said, um, as David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So who was David's Lord? And to whom was he, who was he speaking about? Well, they couldn't answer it, so they didn't want to answer that because they didn't have an answer, not realizing the deity of Christ. So here, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, also teaches the deity of Christ. Now, the next one we want to look at is Isaiah 53, 3. He was not, he was despised and forsaken of men, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like a one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Okay. Now, there's another. Why is that important? That's a, that's a prophecy in Isaiah about Messiah. Because it proves that the Old Testament prophesied that Messiah would be rejected. So, you can read in a, a document that comes from about 150 A.D. called... Um, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, a Jew. And the dialogue was, was purported to have taken place in 135, right after the destruction of, of Jerusalem by um, the emperor of Rome at the event of this Bar Kochiba revolt. And in this dispute between Justin Martyr, who was a Christian, a, a philosopher who had been converted to Christ, and Trifo, who was a faithful Jew, these issues came up. These very same verses, the same questions. Um, what, what kind of a Messiah would be crucified? We know that, uh, that it's a curse to be crucified. So the response was to go back to these scriptures. So we need to know the Old Testament in order to validate, uh, prophetically validate the events of the New and show that everything happened according to God's plan, including the fact that Messiah would be rejected by his own people. That was Isaiah 53.3. Now, what does it say in Isaiah 53.10-12? But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his, offer, his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured himself out unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, outstanding. Now think about that. Now, we tend to hear these verses maybe quoted at Christmas time. Think about what that's saying. Right there in those passages that Karn read, you have the resurrection. You might say, well, how do you have the resurrection? Because it says that it was pleased to crush him, and he poured out his soul to death. And then it says in the same verses, but he'll prolong his days. Did you see that? So, uh, much like Psalm 22, where it talks about his death, and then the consequence of his death was this great victory and prolonging of the kingdom. Here we have the resurrection. We have the substitutionary atonement, because uh, it says he would justify the many. How would he justify the many through his death? So you have substitutionary atonement. You have uh, this uh, voluntary laying down of his life that we read here in Hebrews. Um, he endured the cross, despised the shame, who for the joy that sat before him. So we have uh, not the idea that Jesus came to try to be the king now and to defeat Rome, uh, the Jewish enemies. And, but he failed, and so the church came up with plan B. That's not the case, because here it says that it pleased the Lord, it pleased God to crush him. So the idea that Messiah would come and be rejected was God's idea from before uh, the foundation of the world and not an accident on the scene of history. So the amount of theology that you get out of Isaiah is amazing, and it's something that we need to know because if people... Uh, still are asking these same questions, especially Jewish people. All right, now there was another one here, Romans 15 and verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, 
The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay, so then he was bearing the reproach that people had for God and by dying on the cross and taking upon himself the, the reproach of sin and the reproach of sinners. And that's what we're going to see in the next passage here. So now let's move on to Hebrews 12 and verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow, <coughs> excuse me, so you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now there's a textual issue here, and we, we ran into one in the last verse, but I want to give you the information about these things, because if you go read commentaries, if you do a study, it'll come up, and, and I want you to know about it. The textual issue is that some of the older and better manuscripts and there's another way of, of translating this. It sometimes could be translated, endured such hostility by sinners against themselves. And which is a more difficult reading, which in textual science, the more difficult one is usually the likely one because a scribe's not going to take a difficult reading, an easy reading. And turn it difficult. But they may take a difficult one, change it to an easier one because they thought that maybe something was wrong. And so in the, when the, what this means is that we have thousands of manuscripts and there's a science to taking these families and working back to coming to what the original was. That's how we get our Greek text. But sometimes there are some manuscripts that has one reading and another set of manuscripts that have another reading and they're both quite old going way back. So then scholars have to decide which one was correct. One of the principles is the more difficult one takes priority over the easier one. All right? And so the scholars will go for the difficult one. Why? Because, like I said, they're not going to change an easy one to a difficult one. There would be no motivation to do so. But if, if a scribe was, was following and said, well, this doesn't make sense. It must have meant this. That's how you get an easier reading. All right? Now, what about this against themselves? What would it mean if that's indeed what the Greek text is telling us. Well, according to William Lane, what the meaning would be that they're in their rejection and hostility against Christ, what they are actually doing is damaging themselves. Although they are unwittingly pushing forward God's plan, they are doing so at their own guilt and their own spiritual peril. Now, if that's the meaning, then uh, it would be very similar to what Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, where he said that this man, uh, who was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified at the hands of godless men. And so, therefore, they brought guilt on themselves and on their own nation by their action, but not denying the fact that it was God's plan. All right? So there's two things that are true. Something can be foreordained by God, and those who carry it out are morally guilty for doing it. That's exactly what Acts 2, 22, 23 say. Yes? But the way that that works isn't that God made somebody do it. Because He doesn't judge them immediately. For the... It isn't that God made somebody do sin or that no. he authored the sin. No. It's that he didn't judge them immediately for sinning so that they could continue on. It, it, yeah, he it, gave them space to do it by not bringing immediate judgment. Let me give you another example of this. Um, remember the story of Job about um, Job was really well off and Satan tells God, the only reason Job's serving you is because you gave him a good deal. All right? And, and take away his benefits and Job will curse you. He won't serve you. He's just, he, he's, his motives are bad. So God does this. He removes his hand of protection over Job. And one of the first things that happened was that the Chaldeans came and, and killed, pillaged and killed his sons and stole all their stuff. So these Chaldeans uh, immediately tried to destroy, destroy Job. So the agency of the destruction of Job's family was the Chaldeans. But behind the scenes, we know that the reason it was allowed to happen was because God decided to allow it to happen. Now, does that mean the Chaldeans are not guilty for being savage murderers? 
No. Does it mean God immediately made the Chaldeans do this? Forced them to do it? No. The Chaldeans were just being true to their own nature. They wanted to murder and pillage all the time. They just weren't being allowed to do it. And so God finally let them do what they wanted to do. Much like Pharaoh. Does that make sense? So, what? So, um, that, I, I think that's what's happening on the scene of history. Well, and when it says he endured such hostility against themselves, it's that we always, if, if God would judge our sins, we wouldn't exist now. If he got immediately judged our sins, nobody would exist. If he'd have judged Adam and Eve's sins, they would have died. We'd all died. There'd been nothing here. So that God allows them to continue on in their sin because he doesn't judge them. And all the time he's enduring this hostility that they're bringing upon them. Yeah. Whether it's against him or against themselves, the hostility exists because of God's toleration and his mercy uh, to allow history to go on. Let me read this. This word of themselves or himself, utois, uh, is also used in Hebrews 6.6. Same word. So, uh, Carla, could you look up Hebrews 6.6? So the same word is used in 6.6 is in Hebrews 12.3. And there it's translated themselves. Hebrews 6.6. And then having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. <laughs> okay, so the, William Lane's argument is that that's the exact same phrase and it's translated themselves there, so that it should probably be translated the same way in, in Hebrews 12.3. So that's the textual issue. Uh, I mean, it's certainly true that they were hostile against Christ, but perhaps there, if you think of that, of that cross-reference, they crucified to themselves the Son of God. In a sense, they are pushing themselves away from God. I'm looking at the word sinners in that, in that uh, it says sinners against himself. But if, if I focus on sinners, then sinners is when you're breaking the word of God or you're against God. So essentially, their sinners are against himself, who's, who's the deity, Jesus the deity. Well, yeah, they're sinning against God. Ultimately, it it, it, it the consequences is there that we suffer. Right. But here, the sinners are against the, the deity. Well, if they're, yeah, if we translate it against himself, then what we have is they're hostile against God, which is clearly true. But ironically, God won't suffer because of that. They will. Right? Correct. Correct. Sure. They can't truly take any, detract anything from God. They can only put themselves in under judgment. Uh, let me read what Lane said about this. He, he wants to translate it themselves. Um, verse 3a sheds light on its meaning. It suggests that one of the more sobering features of the crucifixion was the riot of self-contradiction that was expressed in the sadism with which Jesus was treated. The statement that Jesus endured from such sinners, from sinners such opposition against themselves is biting irony. Um, so... The concept that the evildoer really injures himself is commonplace in antiquity, and he quotes a bunch of things. Um, so the warning to the, to the Christians is this, or if they were to relinquish their commitment to Christ under pressure of persistent opposition, they would express opposition against themselves, as in Hebrews 6, 6, crucify them to themselves the Son of God, just as did Jesus' tormentors. So he ties it into the whole um, exhortive warning theme in the book of Hebrews, warning against apostasy. But in, let's go back now to our verse, for consider him. Now the word here, consider, is parallel to fixing our eyes on in verse 2. Notice in verse 2 it says fixing our eyes on Jesus. Verse 3, consider him. These are synonymously parallel. Why is that important? Because... I remember when we had Dave Hunt speak here in 86, he was talking about the seduction of Christianity. And one of the things he was talking about was this visualizing Jesus, that you, that you get this mental Jesus that kind of comes alive and talks to you, and you, you have this visual image of Jesus. And he was calling that mental alchemy, and he was warning against it. And when the debate 
ensued, which it did. There was a big debate. People looked at Hebrews 12.2 as um, justification for creating a mental image of Jesus in prayer, fixing your eyes on Jesus. So they said, well, how can you fix your eyes on Jesus unless you can see in your mind what he looks like? But the reason I'm bringing that up now is that as I was doing my research here, I realized what I didn't realize 20 years ago is that we have a synonymous parallelism. And when you have that, it helps you interpret the Bible. So fixing your eyes on means the same thing as consider. It doesn't mean create a mental image in your mind. It means consider. And, and it's used metaphorically of the games. Remember, we're in a foot race here. Run with endurance. The race is set before us. Okay? And so, in a sense, Jesus becomes the goal, the, the finish point that we're running toward. So fixing your eyes on meaning like a runner who keeps focused on the finish line. And the finish line for us is Christ. And so then it comes on to consider Him. So considering Christ, what He did, the price He paid, the rejection He went through, the scorn, the ridicule, the ridicule, all the things that happened to Him, then run with endurance the race because this is what it's all about. This is what the Christian life's about. Being treated in a hostile manner by the world, just like they did Jesus. Um, Carla. Just noticing in my, um, in my Bible, it has uh, another translation of that, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's looking to Jesus right. as well. Yeah, look, looking to. Well, it, it obviously isn't teaching this cataphatic prayer that they're talking about. It's, that's imported into the text, but that's what they got to do when they don't have a real Bible verse. Uh, consider him who endured hostility by sinners. So if we are treated with hostility, then we can gain courage and endurance by thinking about Jesus. Right? Um, I've been saying this, and it seems to be clearly true throughout the Scripture, and that is that if you have the true message of the Gospel and you proclaim it clearly, you will have hostility against you. Right? If the world loves you, there's something askew with your message. The world doesn't love the true gospel message. It hates it. Now, if you take certain parts out, redefine a few things, dress it up a little bit, make it look nice. That's what the world's looking for. But um, it, it, you can't do that. Yes. If you consider the hostility towards themselves... When you preach the gospel message, in a certain sense, there's also you have a hostility towards it. At least your your carnal nature also has a hostility towards it, because it's not popular with me. <laughs> in, in, in a certain sense, you know what I'm saying? Because it you know, means I have to change. Uh, that's a very good point. Um, I was just reading some MacArthur. I picked up his book, and I got that for you. Remind me to give you that. I, you, actually, you may Ryan, you may want to get that as a brief. Uh, reference for your book that you're writing. Uh, MacArthur is talking about the vanishing conscience. But here's something that I believe to be true. That when you're unconverted, in some ways in this world, you got everything going in the right direction. Quote, unquote. In other words, you're living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. The world's there to feed these things. Focus. Yeah, you're focused. you got the principle of focus. I, I, got, I wrote about that in my book. And so, um, you're, you're <coughs> everything's kind of going the same direction. And you're not battling against sin because you've decided that it's not sin, it's fun. Right? And uh, this, this is what we live for. This is what we're here to do. We're, and we sing songs about it. We're on the highway to hell. Right? <laughs> and, and all my buddies are going with me. And so, we're kind of going the same direction. Well, what happens when you get converted? I think what Keith said is absolutely true. Now you have conflict. Not only do we have conflict with the world, because we're going, we're not living for the lust of eyes, the lust of flesh, and the boastful pride of life, but to do the will of God, which is contrary to the whole world system. And we create internal conflict. Why? Because now I still have the temptation. I still would like to sin, but I know it's wrong. 
And so there is the conflict of mortifying the flesh. Right? And the, the temptation for apostasy that the book of Hebrews is thinking about is that you could get rid of all these conflicts. <coughs> you could get rid of the conflict with the world. And you can get rid of the internal conflict. Just go the way of the world, full tilt, and be right back into living for pleasure. Now, the problem is you have to go to hell. But the world doesn't seem to believe that that's... <laughs> there's kind of a downside at the end of the journey, but they don't believe in that anyhow. Um, I was talking to Brian Flynn about this. He's been a Christian for about 10 years or so. No, I know. I was talking to Todd. He's been a Christian for about four years. It was Todd. Um, Todd Cranus. And we were discussing that. And because he could, you know, it wasn't that many years ago he wasn't a Christian. And he said, here's the deal, the way I thought and the way my friends think. They don't really believe it. They really don't think that God would ever really send anybody to hell. Yeah, it's just, it's just your mind blocks it out. He said, they don't believe it. They think it's all a joke or they think it can't be true. And because they don't believe that, they, they're unwilling to accept the terms of the gospel because they don't believe that they're actually being escaping from anything because they don't think it's real. Well, how is that going to change? Well, it's going to change through the preaching of the law and the gospel and that God is going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment because that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit has to convict us of these things. We don't just in our natural minds want to believe it. I mean, the fear of the Lord doesn't mean he's going to judge sin and that should scare the crap out of you. <laughs> I mean, can you say that in church? Okay. <laughs> okay, something like that. I, I like what uh, I heard Daniel Fuller say it this way. He said, you should read these things and it should scare the hellishness out of you. <laughs> All right, so that there, that's absolutely true. Now, for that to happen, the Holy Spirit has to do this work. It isn't just a natural thing. You know, bring it over to Ryan, that mic over to Ryan. The whole issue of considering him is, is somewhat, or keep your eyes fixed on Christ, is if you want to kind of look at kind of a summation of what the author of Hebrews is leading to, that's what he wants us to ultimately do. And the interesting thing about, about considering Christ is you look at what the, the, book of, the book of Hebrews is really about Jesus, the whole, up to there. It's about who Jesus is. He's greater than all under the Old Covenant. But you look at Jesus' life here on earth, and we're supposed to consider that, that his whole life was a life of conflict and looking forward to this ultimate time of conflict, which is going to be at the cross. And, um, but the, the beautiful thing about that is not only does that give us the expectation of what we live for here, but there was also this joy set before him that the gospel was in Jesus' Suffering, he was reconciling himself to the world, and now we see Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he, and then as we proceed in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews starts telling us about this kingdom that we are a part of, and there is going to be a time when Jesus is going to put away all this conflict, Amen. because and we're going to join him, ruling in heaven. So there's this wonderful thing about considering Christ and associating yourself with what he's done. But in order to do that, you have to have this expectation that this whole life, up until you leave this world, is ripe with conflict right. because of the gospel. Exactly. Yep. And the gospel is believed in its native truth and reality. It always creates conflict and division. Here's what it says. Uh, I was going to read Lane on this, the pastoral concern of this. Now, thank you, Ryan. It, this is a very much a pastoral concern that we would overcome, that we would be overcomers. It says here, the writer was concerned pastorally that the men and women he addressed might become weary and lose heart prior to completing their course. Jesus had not allowed the hostile opposition of sinful men to wear him down, but had triumphed over it. The tendency of the community, however, was to become fatigued. Their courage and readiness to identify themselves with Jesus faltered. Seeking to avoid suffering, they could fall. Consideration of the disposition and attainment of Jesus points out an element of struggle and the endurance that's required. 
what is what is called for is stamina and the determination to go the distance in order to attain the goal. And uh, I used this analogy last week. I was a distance runner in high school. And I can't tell you how many times um, partway through one of these cross-country races, uh, well, for every once in a while a thought comes into your head, why am I doing this? Right. You know, this is voluntary. I could have gone out for something else. But, you know, besides for that, um, the thought goes through your head, oh, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna die. I, I, I need to just quit. But I, I just would be an embarrassment to the team for me not to finish. Now, I could do what my friend did, but he got kicked off the team. Um, my friend Jack Fritz, we, they used to, at a, in Sheldon, Iowa, in 1967, 68, when we were running these races, Nobody had ever come watch you run cross-country because so, we were sort of the obscure sport. Why would anybody do that? Everybody went to the football game. So in order to get us some attention, they'd run the race during the football game and have us run through the goalpost, you know. And they made a big figure eight. So it was all dark out there. It was at night. And then you'd run through the lights. And then you'd go out around in a big figure eight. And he'd come through. And we'd go, we had several of those. Well, my buddy Jeff Fritz had drank a 16-ounce RC cola before the race started which was not a good idea. And he went around halfway through the race, and it was, of course it was dark, and he went out, out along the edge of an old fence. Well, he got sick, so he kind of crawled off in the bushes and threw up his RC cola. And then he got done with that. He kind of got up, and he started looking around. Well, here they come back around again. So he kind of figured out, see, I probably was about in eighth place. So he, he didn't try to win. He just jumped himself back in and figured I might as well finish the race. <laughs> he jumped back in and... Well, he's nice and fresh, comes through the finish line. The only trouble is the coach noticed he wasn't there enough other time through. <laughs> the only guy I ever heard of getting kicked off across country for cheating. I said, Fritz, why do you drink a 16-ounce RC before the race? Oh, I was thirsty. <laughs> so anyhow, there are times when you feel like quitting. Now, the analogy is the Christian life has times where you may feel like quitting. You may get discouraged. You may feel like, why am I going through this? Why do I have to have all my family hate me? Why does everybody think I'm nuts? Why, why am I in conflict at work, in conflict at home, in conflict everywhere because of the gospel? I could just keep my mouth shut and everything would be fine. That's the danger, but we can't do that. Yes, right? Once you're regenerate and you have these, if you have those impulses or thoughts go into your mind, they're there for a second, but then all of a sudden, when you step back and you're kind of sobered up, you think, well, this is almost like Peter. Lord, to whom do, do we go then? Yeah, where you we have the words of eternal life. Yeah, so yeah. it's just like you'd know that you'd getting away and knowing what you knew before, you'd be ten times more miserable in this life. Exactly, that's true. <laughs> if you go back to your old way, um, you're going to be living with a whole lot of guilt that you didn't have before. Because now you know. I, and that's a supernaturally imparted knowledge. I knew that because I went from a blasphemer to a Christian instantaneously on, on July 18, 1971. And I remember one of the first thoughts in my mind, and, and after regeneration, first thing that happens is regeneration. That's when the veil is pulled off. That's when the lights go on. That's when you see what you couldn't see before. And the first thought in my mind was, if I don't repent, I really am going to hell. I really believed it for the first time. Before that, I was just, you know, telling people to go there, but I didn't think anybody ever really would. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I knew that it was real, and that's where I was headed. And, and so that is something that the gospel imparts to us through the Holy Spirit. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, cross references, uh, Bert, uh, Matthew 10, 24 and 25, Barb, Luke 4, 28 and 29, Edith, uh, Matthew 24 and verse 9, and then Noel, Revelation. Oh, wait a second. That, that's all I, I'm going too far. Hold on here. I went too far. I'm into the next verse. So just Bert and Barb. And then there's a longer one that we'll all turn to in John 10. Okay, first, uh, Luke 4, 28 and 29. Okay, do you have it? Whoever gets there first. 
Matthew 10, 24, 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher, and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of his house Beelzebub, how much more the uh, members of his household? Right. In other words, Jesus predicted that the disciples would be rejected and scorned in the same way that he did. Okay, and then Luke 4, 28, 29. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Yeah, that was the people in his hometown. All right? He went, in, he went into his home synagogue in um, Nazareth, and he said, um, he quoted Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. He said, today that is fulfilled in your hearing. Only well, he left out the part for the end times, because it was just the first advent. And they got so mad, they were going to throw him off a cliff. How dare you? We know who you are. You, you grew up here at a carpenter's son. How dare you claim you're uh, the Messiah? So they knew what he was claiming. Now, I had John 10.31. Let's all turn to that. John 10.31, verse 31. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man made yourself out to be God. He answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said ye are gods? If he called them gods... By the way, it's Elohim in Hebrew. To whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because you said, I am the Son of God. If you do not do the works of my Father, do not believe it. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Now, it's interesting, lesser to greater argument, which is a typical Hebrew argument. All right? So, if the term Elohim was used of fallen humans, it's a rare usage, but there was one time it was. It was talking about the judges, about, about judges that were corrupt. And, and, and he said, I, in there, it says, told them they're going to die in their sins. But if the term could be just used... Not literally for some humans. Why am I a blasphemer for using it about me? Jesus said, when it really applies. He really is God. He really is the Son of God. So he's not blaspheming. He's telling the truth. That's what this passage is saying. But yet they, he did the miracles. He, he did all these wonderful things to prove who he was. And all they wanted to do was kill him. And so he was mistreated in his hometown. He was mistreated by the religious leaders. He was mocked and ridiculed. He was scorned while he was dying on the cross. And then when he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to his own prediction, they took money to lie about it and say the disciples stole the body. So it shows you the perversity of the sin nature um, and why we certainly need a Savior. Now, we are going to verse 4. For you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. All right? Basically, he says, it's not that bad. It might get worse. Now, we're continuing the athletic metaphor. The term striving would be a term from the games. So we started with a metaphor of, of a distance run, verse 1, run with endurance the race set before us. And in order to finish the race, we keep our eyes on Jesus because there's the finish line. And we're not going to quit till we get there, no matter how tired, no matter how difficult, no matter how burdensome, no matter what, how much hostility 
We will not quit. We're going to stay in this race. He who endures to the end shall be saved. We've got to finish the race all the way to the finish line. Then he takes up the metaphor now because this is like the Olympics. Okay? They have other events. And the other, another one of the events is boxing. And uh, when they boxed in those days, shedding blood was literal. Well, it still is, I guess. And, uh, but they didn't have these nice boxing gloves. <laughs> All right. So and now, the, now we go into a different event. And he says it could be a lot worse. Uh, no, no one evidently in this community had yet died as a martyr. And so continue to press on because that's what's necessary for this event. Because yes. yeah, that whole concept, there's two different things, a way you can interpret it here, and I've heard it several ways, you know, or the other side of it before, is that you haven't striven in, uh, against sin, you know, and you're striving against sin, you haven't shed blood, that I need to stand up and strive against this, this sin. So it's like a, a pep talk for me to go stand and against this sin uh, instead of trusting in God and striving in my faith just to believe that God has, has saved me, I have to go fight against the sin on my own. So it kind of twists the whole thing. I don't know if you've, you'd, you'd heard that. or Well, yeah, how much of it is striving, trying harder. Exactly. In this case, the, 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 the temptations to quit are external. That's the attack against them by the hostile world. Not that there aren't internal difficulties, and the Lord's going to deal with us. That's what's going to lead us into this idea of discipline. The Lord disciplines us. Um, but here it's basically, I think that the one simple point, don't give up. Don't give up. You, you could be worse. You haven't died yet. Literally. Okay. And some do. Some have. But don't give up. I have a couple. Uh, now let's go. Now Edith, Matthew 24, 9, and Noel, Revelation 12, 11. Matthew 24 and verse 9. You don't have your glasses. Okay. Matthew 24, verse 9 says, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Okay. Now let's go to Revelation 12, 11. Revelation 12:11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not lose their and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Yes. Very very important passage about what the book of Revelation means by the term overcomer. They overcame him three things. Here's how you become an overcomer. They overcame him one because of the blood of the Lamb. Now, who was it that they overcame in that context? Does anybody remember? The accuser of the brethren. Okay, the accuser of the brethren accused them day and night before the Lord. They want to pass the mic back in. Um, all right, so Satan is accusing day and night. Now, how do they overcome the accuser of the brethren? Number one, by the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? That means that we admit we're sinners, but it's Christ shed blood that averts God's wrath against our sin. Right? We're not going to fight Satan by our own righteousness. We're not going to overcome the accuser by saying, well, I haven't ever done anything wrong. That doesn't work because it's just flat out not true. They overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb. We're trusting not in ourselves, not in our own works righteousness, but in the perfect righteousness of Christ as imputed to all who have come to him by faith, and the, his blood is our hope that it was shed for our sins. Secondly, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Now, that's a very important term. The word testimony there is martyrion, and it means from where we get our word martyr. Now, the reason the word martyrion, testimony, came to be called martyr because so many Christians were killed for their testimony in the early centuries of the church. 
And the testimony was the key as to whether you lived or whether you died. Uh, if you've studied early church history, you find that um, there's this uh, letter to Pliny the Elder and from one of the governors, and they were asking what to do. Or maybe Pliny wrote the letter, but they said, well, what should we do with these Christians? They're, they're refusing to worship the pagan gods. They won't burn incest to Caesar, and, and they're being accused of sedition against Rome. What should we do with them? And the policy that they came up with was that they didn't want to kill any people that weren't really Christians. So they wanted just showing up at a Christian meeting wouldn't cost you your life. And uh, if somebody called you a Christian wouldn't cost you your life. They wanted to know if you really were one. So in order to ascertain whether somebody really was a Christian before they'd killed them, they had them, they forced them to do certain things and make certain statements. They, they, they'd say, if you, <coughs> excuse me, if you curse Christ, swear by the genius of Caesar, now they had a, they had a particular meaning for that, burn incense to the gods, and we will let you go. But if you confess Christ, They'll die. That's the rules. And this guy, this pagan, wrote this letter. Remember that one, Ryan? Did you in the New Testament backgrounds? And he said, we found that true Christians won't do this. Right? And, um, and so they knew. The pagans found out that true Christians won't give up their testimony. Martyrion. So because they won't give up their testimony, they're martyred. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's who he is and what he's done. Exactly. And the testimony was confessing him as Lord. And that, that offended them because they said Caesar is Lord. Yeah. Exactly. So that's important. Now, it says in the in Revelation, um, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Is that right? All right. And so all prophecy is about the person and work of Christ and our willingness to confess it. Who he is, what he did, and what, what's the significance of it. That's our testimony. And it isn't how I feel and what I think. Did you see that Dean Gotcher? Some of you there on Sunday night? If you didn't see that, you should get the DVD. That was outstanding. He says, our modern dialogue has turned into this. What, what do you think and how do you feel? Nobody cares what God said. They just want to, what do you think and how do you feel? And well, it's, it's really amazing. No, I don't care what you think or how you feel. I want to know what did God say. And if I'm on Larry King Live or in some television show and someone asks me about Christ or what Christ means to me, and I don't confess that or I don't talk about that, but I talk about how I feel, that's a denial of what we're saying here. Right. And how I feel, this is a very good point, and thank you, Ryan, for bringing it up. If I say, I'm so happy now that I have Jesus, well, that's, prob that's good, that's fine, but that's not what the Bible means by testimony. That's not what they're talking about in Revelation, uh, what was it, 12, 11? Did I have you read? Yeah, it's, that's not what that means. It says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and then the next phrase is connected to that. They loved not their lives unto death. In other words, uh, as was literally happening during the Great Tribulation that you read about in, in the book of Revelation, they had the choice of taking the mark of the beast or dying. That was the only two choices. And they loved not their lives unto death, so they overcame, even in their death. Even the ones that were martyred are still overcomers because the world could not take away the confession, their, the blood atonement, their, their confession of the Lord, and that was everything to them. So that's what the word testimony means. And we'd certainly have to have the blood atonement in our doctrine. Yes, Denise. All right. I was just thinking, even, you know, when it says you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin, even if you are martyred because of the gospel, 
it is the world's hatred towards the gospel where Christ bore the wrath of God. And he did that for sin. We will die for the gospel, but not for sin. Right. And so in Christ, when he was on the cross, you know, why have you forsaken me? He was left there bearing the wrath where when people are martyred, they, God doesn't forsake them. Right. They have that strength to go through it. So even at martyrdom, you really aren't bearing what Christ bore. Right. That's the wrath of the world against God, mm-hmm. not the wrath of God against sin. And that's a good way to look at it. I, I, thank you, Denise. It, either that we're going to have the wrath of the world or the wrath of God, one or the other. Friendship with the world, it says in James, is hostility to God. Now, it doesn't mean we have to try to be obnoxious to get everybody to hate us so we feel like better Christians. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. We, we should be kind and not give needless offense. Uh, I, I think we should treat people right, be good citizens. Even those same martyrs, martyr, Justin Martyr, if you want to read an interesting document from church history, I would read Justin Martyr's Apology. He has two of them. And Justin Martyr there said, I don't know, said to the Romans, you're killing us, but do you know what you're doing? We pray for you because our Lord told us to. We pay our taxes to Rome because the Lord told us to. We work at jobs because the Lord told us to. So we're a good citizen. The only crime that you're killing us for is that we don't serve your gods, that we mistreat your gods. But then he said, sometimes I get Tertullian and Justin Martyr um, mixed up. So anybody listening to this that's a scholar, I might be wrong about whether it's Tertullian, but I think it was Justin Martyr. But he, then he becomes kind of sarcastic. Justin Martyr, I think that was him, he says, you, you accuse us of abusing your gods. He says, you treat your own gods worse than we do. He says, if you get tired of Saturn, you melt him down and make him into a cooking pot. <laughs> so it's just amazing the, the, some of this early dialogue that they had. And so we ought to be good citizens. We, and I, I agree with Justin Martyr. The Lord told us to pay our taxes. The Lord told us to work. The Lord told us to be good citizens. The Lord told us to pray for those that hate us, pray for our enemies. He told us to pray for the leaders and governors and kings. And we ought to be obeying our Lord and be good citizens. The only offense that we should be having is the offense of the gospel itself. And if the gospel is offensive, we can't do anything about that. So um, that's important to keep in mind, that we treat people right and that we're kind and that we show the virtues of Christ by God's grace. But the gospel cannot be compromised in any regard because it's the only hope we have for eternal life. All right. So um, Ryan is going to be preaching on walking in the spirit. Have you ever wondered how do you walk in the spirit? What does it mean? That's what Ryan's going to preach us from Galatians 5. Right. So that's at 1030. Uh, Thanks for joining in our study of the book of Hebrews. Next week we'll carry on.